Hey everybody, uh, we've got a real timely topic that uh, Clay Shields is going to talk to you about today. Uh, a little bit about Clay, he was born in Washington, D.C., but uh, grew up with his father, or uh, stepfather being a, an agent, a covert agent with the CIA, so he did most of his uh, growing up overseas. Uh, he's got an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering from the University of Virginia. Uh, spent a, a year as a, a computer programmer, uh, and then went into the Army. Uh, did a, was an officer in the 101st Airborne. Uh, with the Army. Uh, from there, he decided to uh, get a PhD. So he got a PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz. And uh, his uh, dissertation uh, studied computer networking, uh, particularly multicast routing and <coughs> computer network security issues. Uh, with uh, a lot of things you've seen in the news recently, uh, today he's going to talk to us about uh, tracing uh, the distributed denial of service attacks. So, Thank you. So most of you probably saw in the news a few weeks ago when a lot of e-commerce sites were hit by denial of service attacks and were essentially taken down for a few hours at a time. Different one over a few days, right? Some of you were probably in the lab, but you were trying to get to those sites anyway to procrastinate, so uh, you didn't actually get through, and so you notice why. So what I'm going to talk to you today is about the difficulty, actually, that there exists in tracing denial of service attacks and finding out who did them. If you've been following the investigation, all the leads into who committed these attacks have come off of transcripts of IRC chat sessions and uh, attentive system administrators at different places who found their machines were broken into. The, the network traffic itself provided no uh, support in locating the attackers. So what I'm going to talk about is uh, tracing these attacks, why it's difficult. I guess I can move on. Uh, tracing, first I'm going to give an overview of the network so everybody's kind of on the same page as to how the network works. Then we'll talk about the network denial of service attacks, how they, how they work. We'll go into how they're difficult to track back and why that is, and we'll take a look at some of the research that's been done in the area of tracing these attacks to the origin. And finally, we'll talk about uh, future work, some work that's being done here, some open problems for the future. So let's just start off going over a little overview of the network just to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. This is probably really basic for most of you, but uh, please bear with me just for a second so we can bring everybody along, even those who don't really have a lot of network experience. So when you look at a network, you can consider it as containing two types of network entities. The first are hosts, and these are like PCs or workstations, or the typical devices that you expect users, like you and me, to be sitting down and using day to day. And they, they are essentially sitting on the edges of the network and commuting, communicating with each other across the network. Now routers actually are what make up the infrastructure of the network. These are dedicated machines that sit in the middle and do nothing but pass packets back and forth. Here's a little diagram, and we'll be looking at something like this uh, over and over again as we go through. The big cloud in the middle with the circles represents the network. The cloud is the network. Those circles are routers. They're devices that do nothing but forward packets. And the squares on the edges are hosts. Now, if you notice at the extreme left, you can see that uh, a router might be hooked up to a broadcast media, like an Ethernet, that has multiple hosts that share the same link. Okay, We won't always be looking at that, but that will come in useful later. So when we talk about communication over an IP network or an internet protocol network, what we're talking about is packet switch communication. Now IP networks are all packet switched. Instead of having a direct connection like a telephone network might have, instead connections between the machines are streams of packets. That is when you want to communicate something over the computer, your computer makes a packet out of it, puts it onto the network, the network sends the packet across to the other side, and uh, streams of packets back and forth essentially are what create the communication between. Now one thing that's interesting to notice is that routers are forwarding the packets along. They don't necessarily change data along the way. Um, 
and that not all packets need to take the same path through the network. In fact, it's possible for packets to take different paths through the network. In this example, I have that blue host on the left side sending two different packets over to the blue host on the right side. The, uh, the two packets, the yellow and blue, take different paths through the network, though they both eventually arrive. And when they arrive, they're not necessarily in the same order that they were when they were sent. Okay? It's the, uh, the purpose of the IP protocol and uh, TCP running at the endpoints that orders these packets and makes sure they're resent if they're lost in the network, because the network does not necessarily guarantee delivery. So when we talk about packets, we, talk, we think about packets as having two main parts. A data part, which is actually the information that's being sent between the two hosts, and some header information, that's the routing information that's used to get the packets where they're supposed to go. Now the routing information has a bunch of different things. We're not going to look at all the different fields, but a few basic things you need to know about is that each packet has a source address that claims where the packet was sent from. It's got a destination address, which is where the packet's going to be delivered to. It's got a, a time to live counter, which decrements over each hop. At some point, if the time to live uh, is expired, the packet's just dropped. It has some options, and we'll talk about options a little later. Um, and it has some other information as well. One of the things it has is an uh, identification field. And packets that are sent from a particular host each have, or excuse me, a particular host for a particular uh, connection, each have a unique identification number. And that's so that if the packet at any point in the network is too big to pass through the network there, it can be fragmented into smaller parts, and each smaller part sent over the network and then reassembled correctly at the other end. The identification identifies which fragments of packets go together. Now one thing about the uh, source address in packets, okay, when you send a packet, the source address is where supposedly the packet came from. One thing about that is that source address can be an out and out lie. It can be false, it can be fabricated. Um, and it doesn't actually affect the delivery of the packet because when the routers in the network forward the packet, all they look is at the destination address, okay? It's kind of like putting a postcard into the mail. The mailman will get it, they'll look at the destination address and send it off to the post office towards the end. Eventually to reach your house, they'll never actually look at the, at the return address or the source address to figure out where it came from because they don't care necessarily unless something strange happens to the packet, okay? Um, because you can send packets with a fake source address, it allows construction of packets that appear to be from somewhere else. And here's an example of that. In this case, we have a red host over there on the left, that's our attacker, that's sending packets that appear to be from the green host to the blue host on the right. Okay. This is uh, IP spoofing, because you're spoofing somebody else's IP address. Now typically when you do IP spoofing, you're only able to initiate a connection one way. That is, the host at the other end, since it expects the source address to be correct to send replies back to you, isn't able to communicate back because it doesn't know the correct address. So in this case, the blue host were it to start sending replies, the replies would be delivered to the green host. Okay. So typically IP spoofing is only useful one, one way. There are some circumstances we won't go into where being able to spoof IP packets uh, will allow two-way communication, but those are uh, not really related to what we're going to talk about. So why is IP spoofing a problem? Well, IP, with IP spoofing, you can definitely very easily pretend to be a different host than what you are. In some cases, you can exploit trust relationships that are based on IP addresses. That is, you can break into other machines that trust other machines based on uh, solely on IP addresses. Also, IP spoofing leads to denial of service attacks because people can send packets with a fake source address 
and hide their location. Additionally, being able to spoof IP addresses leads to some attacks that uh, are denial of service attacks that are more effective than just sending some packets, and we'll look at some of those later on. So what's the big deal about denial of service, we might ask? Well, denial of service is actually a pretty serious problem. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of important, a lot of important electronic commerce going on these days, and just, just taking down a site for a little while might actually cause some uh, harm or damage. So in a denial of service attack, the goal of attackers is, pardon? The goal of attackers is to prevent normal network operation. That is, they want to keep part of the network from performing the normal services that they, that they do. And there's various motives for doing this. I mean, you can imagine some. Uh, for example, say you just saw somebody post, uh, you know, a 1999 BMW 540i, no reserve auction starting at a dollar on eBay, right? You put your $1 bid in, and then you just take out the site for the rest of the week, and you just bought the car for a dollar, right? Because nobody else got the chance to bid on it. It could also be useful if you were an evil politician and say that your opponent was raising lots of money through their website. What do you do? Well, you just take their website out for a week or two, and they can't actually get millions of dollars to compete against you. Okay, so there are actual, there are actual, let me say, evil motivations for doing this. A lot of people, it seems, just do denial of service attacks because they think it's cool, because they want to impress their friends, because they want to take over an IRC channel, right? So there's a lot of not very malicious or huge motivations for doing this. Well, the general method for sending, uh, for constructing a denial of service attack is to send packets that cause other communications in the network to fail. Okay, since the attacker is sitting on the edge of the network, pretty much all they can do to the network is send packets. So what kind, of, what kind of packets can they send? Well, they can send packets that exploit a particular bug, perhaps in a TCP IP stack. And what happens is by, by constructing the packet in a particular way, they send a single packet to a host or a network device, and it causes that network device or that host to crash or to hang. Okay, you might have heard of the ping of, the de the ping of death in the past, some of you, right? You send a packet in, it causes the uh, blue screen of death on, on some Windows machines. This has hopefully been patched now. So some dial service attacks uh, exploit bugs. Some want to take advantage of network control messages by forging control messages, okay? So the network has some sort of, some control messages that go on internally. If you can fake control messages, you can change the internal operation of the network, and you can change it in such a way that denial of service occurs for some or all of the network. Some of this might be uh, fake routing updates. A uh, classic example is to send ICMP host unreachable, a forged one, to a particular host, and then it thinks whoever it's communicating with is, uh, is not reachable. Also, if you're on the path between two communicating hosts over a TCP connection, you can send a reset or a fin packet into the middle of their stream and cause them to drop that connection and lose it. As long as you keep doing that, they're not able to communicate. Finally, the one that's most popular in a lot of cases is a flooding attack, where all you do is you send so many packets that you consume network or host resources at the other end, and you make that other end of the network pretty much unable to function, right? And the type of this attack is really what happened uh, at these e-commerce sites. So we'll take a little closer look at flooding. So here's a little diagram of flooding. Here, our red host is just sending as many packets as it can, as fast as it can, uh, to the uh, light blue host over on the right side and it just clogs up the network. It clogs it up so much that the darker blue host can't actually get any packets through to talk to the other end. All right, basic flooding, straightforward, just uh, massive amounts of stuff. Now the flooded packets can do one of several things. First, they can consume host resources. 
if you send a, a SYN packet, which is the first, which is the uh, the first packet of a TCP exchange, you can cause the host that you send it to to waste some resources internally. And in fact, a while ago, back when this attack was popular and before systems were patched for it, you could essentially shut down a web server by sending unfilled SYN requests to the web server fast enough. And it wasn't even actually terribly fast. Uh, it, just it just caused the internal queue of the web server to overfill and it couldn't accept any more requests while the old ones were pending. Flooded packets can also consume network resources, at least in terms of bandwidth, right? If you're able to send so many packets through over a particular link that it uses up all the bandwidth, or if you can send more than the link can support, even some of your packets are getting dropped, then nobody else's packets are going to be able to get through. So a flooding attack can also consume bandwidth. Now, these attacks only work if the attacker can consume enough of these resources, either at the host or in the network, to make sure that nobody else can get service. So in some cases, the attacker may not be able to construct an efficient attack. So here's an example of that. Our red host is now sending fewer packets, and it's sending as fast as it can, but there's some bottleneck. Perhaps uh, it's a slow machine, or perhaps its network link is very slow, like over a modem or something like that, right? And so though it's sending packets as fast as it can, the legitimate packets can still get through. It hasn't actually consumed enough resources. So what attackers would like to do is find ways to be able to consume more resources, essentially to amplify their, uh, amplify their ability to attack. So when you don't have enough bandwidth, what you really want to do is find a means of generating a lot more traffic. Right? One such attack that was very popular in the past that did this is called a Smurf attack. In a Smurf attack, an attacker sends a spoofed echo request packet to the broadcast address of a particular subnetwork. So here we have our attacker, our, our red attacker there, who sends a faked packet, and it's pretending to be from the victim, which is the blue over on the right side, to the green subnet down on the bottom where there are a number of hosts. Okay? That echo request packet goes to every single host on that green subnet, and each one replies with a packet. Now, here you see that uh, there's only three hosts, so you're getting some amplification of about you know, three packets for every one that you send. If you imagine that there's maybe 100 hosts on the subnet, and that the red attacker is sending packets as fast as it can, that subnet can generate an awful lot of traffic. And that will essentially wipe out the ability of the uh, victim on the other side to participate in any meaningful communication. Hey, Florian, how are you doing? Well, um, yeah. that could also just be using other services. Yes, it could, absolutely. It's not, it's not, it's not, limited, to, uh, not limited to the uh, blue victim network. The thing about Smurf attacks is that they're pretty easy to prevent because you have to craft a particular type of packet that's really easy to filter for, right? You just look for broadcast address echo requests. And so a lot of domains have filters in their routers that cause these packets to be dropped, okay? So now attackers are trying to find better ways to still amplify their attacking ability and create large floods. And there are several tools that have been developed for this, and these are distributed denial of service tools. Um, there's three common ones. These are all out there available, and there's some good analyses available um, of them. And unfortunately, I forgot to put a link slide in, but if you send me email at the end, I can uh, definitely send you, send you the links to look at the analysis. But uh, Trinu is one. TFN, which is a tribal flood network, which is what it's called. But if you look in the inside the code, some of the comments say Teletubbies flood network. So there seems to be like a little child's program theme in denial of service attacks. And uh, I'm not going to even try to pronounce the last one. Maybe Florian will do it for us. Well, 
Oh, oh well, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, so, and that's actually a translation for what? Barbed wire, right? Um, all these tools are essentially very similar, and these are the tools that were apparently used against Yahoo and the other places that were, had denial of service attacks, at least from the popular press reports. It's not actually clear. Some of them might have been smurfed so, from some reports I saw. So how do these distributed denial of service attacks happen? Well, the attack essentially goes in two rounds. First, what happens is the attacker finds hosts throughout the network that are vulnerable to break in. And they go through and they break into as many of these hosts as they can. Okay, How they break in is they take advantage of uh, services that hosts offer that have some bug or some flaw that allows the attacker to communicate with that host and perhaps overflow a buffer or uh, in some cases perhaps get an encrypted password file back that they can, they can then try and do dictionary guessing attacks on, though buffer overflows are much more common in this case. Once they've broken into systems, they install these small software clients. And all these software clients do is they sit and they listen for commands. When they hear a command, they start doing a denial of service. Okay? So the, uh, the hacker who broke in essentially has a master controller that keeps track of all these little clients and sends commands to them to start them all going or stopping at about the same time. So here's the first phase. Our attacker on the left there is compromising these different hosts and essentially zombifying them, perhaps. You might want to say he's getting them under, under his control. And the software to do this, like I said, is pretty, uh, pretty easily available, and there's some good analyses of it. Um, it's actually pretty cool. Some of the communications that goes on between are encrypted with very strong algorithms, the passwords change, things like that, to try and make it difficult to detect the um, control traffic between the master and all the smaller systems. Now, when the master issues the command to start denial of, flood, uh, denial of service attack, each of these small hosts start flooding. Now, each one may not be able to flood a lot. They might not have the power or bandwidth to do it. But taken together, they can represent a pretty significant attack. Right? Now, it's pretty interesting. In these attacks, it was widely assumed that places like Yahoo and eBay, they were pretty well renowned for having huge network pipes, like really lots of bandwidth. In. And people assumed that it would not be possible to do denial of service attack against it because there was so much resource there, they couldn't imagine how it would possibly be consumed. But in, these attacks were able to do it by essentially harnessing the power of hundreds of distributed machines throughout the network. So, we've been attacked. Our site's been taken down. We've seen the packets coming in. How do we go about finding the attacker? Well, first, all we have to do is trace the, the flood of packets to, a, to the source, right? We've got to know where they came from. Second, we have to be able to trace from the source to the origin of the attack. Right? Because if we find where these flooded packets are going to come from, all we're going to find are the compromised hosts. So we really have to go back and find the master machine. And from there, we have to kind of trace back through any other machines the attacker might have broken into to find out where they actually came from. This is really easy, right? <laughs> right? I mean, you can just state it like that. It must be simple. Well, in fact, it's really hard. And the reason is, is that flooded packets are sent with forged IP addresses. So it's very difficult to determine where the packets in the flood are coming from. You just don't know. You can't tell by looking at the packet where the packet came from. Because the only information you have in there, the source address, is a lie. Okay. Now there is some recent work 
which is actually pretty cool. I wish I had uh, come up with it in time myself because I'd been thinking about something like this. It's called Practical Network Support for IP Traceback. And this is work done by, I don't know how to say his name, it's either Stefan or Stephen Savage at uh, University of Washington and some others. And what they do is they do something pretty cool. The routers in the network probabilistically add a little bit of information to packets as they go by. That is, when they receive a packet, they may or may not do something to it. But what they do to it is add information about how the packet has traveled. They add an edge. That is, they add the router it left from and the router it went to in a really tightly compressed form. Okay? They get it all into the IP identification field, which is uh, like 16 bits. It's pretty small. But it's sufficient for them to encode a path of up to 25 hops. Now, because it's probabilistic, that means that each packet may have an edge in it. It may not. Some have multiple edges. So by getting one packet, you can't necessarily determine where it came from. However, since it's a flooding attack, you're getting thousands of these things, right? if not millions. And over time, by getting enough of the different uh, edges, the different hops on the, on the path, you can construct the, the path at least back to the first router that connected to uh, the host where it was sending from. And that's pretty good. That gives you a sense of where, where the packet came from much better than anything else that's available right now. Um, this is research work. They said they've implemented it. It's certainly not implemented in any of the routers or uh, anywhere in the network. But it's definitely a cool idea for the future. The other thing is, is that uh, even though you can't necessarily tell where a packet came from, there are some practical measures you can do that will help prevent these types of attacks. You can turn on source address routing at the edge of your domain. Right? So if you have a particular domain, say Purdue is its own domain, and we connect to, I don't know who we connect to, I'm just going to say Sprint. For our, right? At the router where, where Purdue connects to Sprint, we can check, and we can make sure that all the packets that are passing out from Purdue onto the Sprint network actually have a Purdue address. And anybody who tries to do a spoofing attack from inside Purdue will fail, because the router will drop those packets. Okay? The problem with this is that to do these checks is very expensive computationally in the routers. Routers are built to forward packets based on the destination address. And there's a specific set of hardware that does that. It's called the um, routing plane. Above the routing plane is the control plane. And the control plane handles everything that the routing plane can. Like if the routing plane gets something, it says we have to do a check on this, it gets passed up to the control plane. Control plane's a lot slower. Normally, the routing of packets that goes through the control plane is an order of magnitude slower than just routing it based on the destination address in the routing plane. Okay? So it, it actually is computationally much more expensive. Um, because it's much more expensive, it's not done based on the because of the load on the routing equipment. That control plane also has to do a lot of other stuff. It's doing other filtering checks. It's exchanging routing updates and processing them so that the, the routing that's going on on the forwarding plane happens really quickly. Okay, and, and uh, most people don't have routers that can support checking lots and lots and lots of addresses. The other interesting thing about this is that doing this type of checking doesn't protect your systems from attack. It only keeps you from attacking. Okay? So it's essentially making you a good citizen of the network because you say, even if somebody is able to break in and compromise a host in my domain, you're not going to be able to do these type of attacks from there. Now, you might notice that uh, determining the source of a, pa uh, a packet is essentially a subset of the problem of determining the path. If you're able to determine the path a packet took, then you're able to determine exactly where it came from, right? which is essentially uh, what the practical network support work 
does. It just does it kind of over probabilistic over a number of packets. Another way of determining the path a packet traveled is to use IP options. There's an IP option called record route. That is, every router that gets the packet as it passes through puts its address in there. So that you actually get a list of all the addresses of the router that this packet passed through. However, there's problems with this in terms of at least using it to determine where a packet came from. First of all, the IP options can only hold nine different addresses. So if the path is longer, and frequently they are, they're uh, up to 17 or 25, and in weird cases like 32, but frequently not more than that, there won't be enough slots in the IP options to hold all the addresses that this packet has passed through. Yeah? But you need just like the first ones to be able to find out where it came from? Yeah, that would, absolutely true. Absolutely true. I hadn't thought of that. Good point. Well, but yeah. the, the attacker can fill up the Right. The attacker can put all nine things in, plus, plus the attacker has to turn it on. Right? Plus the attacker has to be cooperative enough to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the other like, solution you can, I mean, when, when, the, when the buffer is fixed, oh, it, it, it's full, you can like cycle through. Right, and so you, you'll get the last nine hops then. So you always have the last nine hops, which won't necessarily lead you back to the attacker. But the other thing about doing this is that, uh, is that it's really expensive again, right? Everything gets passed up to the control plane and it goes slow. I just mentioned this for completeness. This is not actually like a suggested good solution. Yeah, question. Can these routers be redesigned so that the filtering can be redesigned to the other planes? Cisco loves you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason for it is because routers are expensive, right? Like the stuff in hardware that does the lookups is expensive. And the way it's designed right now, I don't think that a simple like operating system upgrade will enable, the, uh, enable it to go any faster. Right, you're going to have to tear out your old router and put a new $20,000 router in. Okay, in the long run, that might have to happen. You know, who knows? Um, but but uh, but right now, the answer is that it's pretty impractical. It is possible, sure. You just have to redesign the routers and replace them all, and that's a lot of money. So, and Cisco is perfectly happy with that solution. Right. So, Excuse me. With a router that has hardware support for doing uh, for doing tracking, like uh, for doing for doing the source filtering in the routing plane. So, okay. So one of the other things you can do is, since people are sending flooding and they're sending just a stream of packets, and that stream essentially is what's causing the denial of service attack, you can just follow that stream back through the network, hop by hop, right? As long as they're still doing that, and in the cases that might be several hours. Now the way that's typically done is, I start getting a denial of service attack, we're, we're say we're Purdue. And I go, oh, my machine doesn't work. And I call up TCP dump and I see all these packets going by and I go, that's weird. So I call Sprint on the telephone and I go, hi, something really weird's happening on my network. And they go, oh, well, the guy who takes care of that's out to lunch. Can you call back like in an hour or so, you know? So eventually I get a hold of the right guy and he goes, gosh, yeah, it looks for us like it's coming through, say, BBN in Boston. And he goes, well, we'll try and get a hold of the right guy in BBN in Boston, right? And they call him and stuff. And so the, the traceback through the network is actually really slow, very, very slow, and very difficult to do by hand because the packets pass through different administrative uh, zones of control. And you have to get in touch with the right people with each. It's possible to do, but in the past, it's taken on the order of days. So at MCI, they developed a tool called DOS Tracker. And what DOS Tracker was supposed to do is denial of service of tracker, and it's supposed to help automate this service. And it's a series of scripts that, for a particular domain, which MCI had, running a particular set of routers, which MCI was running, it would automatically log into each router, 
look and see where the stream was coming from, go to the next one, log in. And so it was able to follow the stream back through the network actually pretty quickly, relatively quickly. Of course, realize this happens only in one domain, and it has to use a particular set of equipment. Well, this was interesting because this tool was actually released into the public domain, and then the next day it was yanked from the public domain. Okay, or Maybe not the next day, but a couple of days later, it was yanked from the public domain. So this was kind of made publicly available, and they go, oh, well, we changed our mind. We're taking it back. It's still out there. I have a link to a couple of sites that have this if you're interested in looking and seeing how it's done. So notice this, this, this is a hop-by-hop hop step. Well, recently, uh, UUNet, a guy named Robert Stone and some other people, came up with what they call center track. And since DOS tracker requires going in through every single router, and that can be uh, pretty many routers, and some routers don't actually have the necessary hardware support, so you have to like jump past them and, and try and figure out on that basis where it's coming from. Since they were trying to make it faster than going through every single machine, they came up with a thing called center track. And what they do in center track is they get the edge routers at the edge of the domain, and they say, we're looking for a denial of service attack against Yahoo. So all the edge routers forward all the traffic to Yahoo to some center point. And they look at that traffic in the center point. And if it's denial of service traffic, they can look and say, oh, this is coming from router number one, which connects to Sprint over there. Okay. So instead of having to go through the entire network, they just say, okay, everybody send all this traffic for a particular destination to this one point, and we'll examine it there. So they kind of centralize the process. And this was uh, information, this was stuff that was released actually just uh, after the attacks, just after the attacks last week. So this kind of speeds up the process of tracing back these active streams through the network. There's also some work that was research work presented at the RAID conference here at Purdue last fall. And it's uh, IDIP, Intrusion Detection and Isolation Protocol. And let me just make sure I get the person's name right, because I've forgotten the past. Uh, Roe, Jay Rowe, uh, came up with this. And in this, what they do is they add some counters to the routers in the network. Not a lot of state, just a little. Keeping state in routers is very expensive, because router memory is expensive and heavily used. So you don't want to keep too much stuff in the routers. But what they do is they essentially keep a count of particular types of packet at each interface at each router. Since the flooding is based on sending lots of packets, in order to trace the stream back through the network, all you have to do is go to your router and say, oh, we're getting a lot of packets over this particular link as indicated by our counter. We'll just go back to that next router. And that next router, you can also look at the count. So it kind of keeps a historical record. So this is interesting work because it's actually the first work that keeps some sort of audit trail, as it were, like some sort of record about what's been going on in the network. right? Everything else is, is required that we are looking at active packets or that we're receiving active packets. This is the first work that uh, actually is trying to do a little bit of audit and re recording information about packets that are going through. Of course, there's limits on its effectiveness because uh, if an attacker is sending lots of SYN packets, for example, and it may be hard to differentiate them from the legitimate traffic, maybe not. And also, you can't actually just keep counting packets forever because your counters are, are essentially a little bit limited. But uh, this, this will help follow back a stream of packets. Now, as you recall before, locating the source of the stream of packets doesn't necessarily mean that you found the attacker. Right? You might have found like one of the particular hosts that's causing the uh, stream of traffic. Or since the communication between the master and the uh, the, the little client is also done via stream of packets like this, you might even be able to trace it back to the particular master machine. Okay. Now, remember what I said in the beginning is that uh, IP spoofing is only, only useful in, in most cases when you have a one-way communication. 
Now, if there's actually a hacker or somebody who's sitting there using an interactive service, they need to have a two-way connection going on. So now the problem switches from locating the origin of uh, a particular stream of packets to being able to trace an attacker back through a connection through multiply compromised hosts. Okay? Let me hopefully make this clear. So in this case, our attacker is actually sitting in front of the keyboard of the red machine all the way on the left. And he is logged in using Telnet or, excuse me, she is logged in through, the telnet, through telnet or Secure Shell to the green machine, from there to the purple machine, from there to the blue ma machine. It could be Secure Shell, it could, could be Telnet or whatever. Okay? What we want to do, somehow, is be able to put sniffers in the network. Okay? So here we have a sniffer and we happen to have a sniffer at the uh, machine that we know the hacker is logged into through multiple hops. And we have an attacker, we also have a sniffer that happens to be at the machine where the, uh, the hacker is coming from, though we don't know that. What we want to be able to do is match the red stream to the purple stream. We want to be able to look at the data flowing by and say, oh yeah, this is actually originating at one place, bouncing, bouncing through some hops and coming out, coming out the other end. Okay. This again can be a pretty difficult thing to do. There are a few research approaches to doing this though. Um, some are host-based. Instead of putting sniffers in the network, what you do is you add information to each of the hosts in the network. And uh, when you get a login request as a host, well, what you can do is you can kind of check back along the path and verify that whoever's logging in is coming in from where they say they're coming in from. Okay? The other thing you can do is you can try and add stuff to the network to make this possible. Most of the time, this is a passive sniffer base. A sniffer is just a device that sits in the network and watches traffic go by and records it. It doesn't necessarily have to send anything itself. What we want to do is match streams in the network. And since we might not discover an attack uh, until long after it's happened, we want to be able to record some sort of audit data about the stream so that if later our intrusion detection goes off and we go, oh, by the way, you were hacked yesterday and here's essentially what happened. We want to be able to go back and say, well, our sniffer kept this log about the attack. Can we match that to someplace else on the network to give us an idea where it came from? Okay. Well, there is a host-based solution that's been proposed, and this was published in USNICS in 1993. It came out of uh, Korea, and it was Il Jung and uh, some other authors that did this. And they published a, a paper called Caller ID System in the Internet. And in this, what they do is they change hosts so that they query previous hosts to see if the person who's logging in is actually who they say they are. And when you, uh, essentially what happens is uh, when somebody logs in, the host before says, here's the list of stuff of places that I know that they're coming from, according to me. And you, as the host that they're logging into, can go back and verify with each point along the way that, in fact, that's where they're coming from. So you can check with each of the hosts all the way through the network to figure out where someone's coming from. There's a couple of problems with though. First of all, it's not practical to refix every host on the internet right now, right? <laughs> like, how would you all feel if someone came to your house and said, oh, we need to put this caller ID software in your system? You'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever, right? It'd be really hard to get all the hosts in a particular internet to do this. Though it might work in some places, like if you're the NSA or if you're a large company, you own all the hosts and you can do whatever you want to them. You might be able to install the software there. The other problem is, is that it's really actually difficult to implement inside a host in such a way that it can't be essentially spoofed or fooled inside the host. Okay? <coughs> Woohoo! <laughs> I actually wondered if that would happen or not. So that's good news, I guess. Um, okay, so it's actually pretty difficult to implement. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention that in a minute. 
So there's also some solutions that are network-based that add sniffers to the network to do particular things. One of them that was uh, it's kind of done for a different reason is called stepping stone detection. And this is work that's being done at Columbia University by Zhang and also Vern Paxson is working on this. Um, the idea behind stepping stone detection is not to determine where somebody is coming from, but to determine if there's one of those hosts inside your domain that somebody's logged into and is forwarding out of again. Okay? They just want to detect if some host inside their network has been compromised and is being used for forwarding. So they put a sniffer at uh, essentially the gateway to the domain, and they look at all the streams that come in, and they look at all the streams that come out. And based on the idle times in the stream, they're able to determine whether somebody is being, is, a host is being used for forwarding or not. Because if you think about it, it's pretty simple, right? Like when you're talking across the network, you type a command and you sit there and you wait for the, the information to come back. Normally it comes back a lot faster than you're capable of thinking, right? So you send something else, you sit, type ls, it goes out, the list of files come back and you sit there and you go, oh, okay, now I can read that. So the idle times that are caused by the user sitting there thinking about what they're seeing and waiting for information to come back are detectable in matching the two streams at one little point. And they do this in real time. Now this doesn't detect the origin of the stream, it just detects forwarding. So you can imagine if you put this on lots of different places, you'd be able to determine whether a stream started in a particular domain or not, even though you couldn't necessarily match them between domains. There's also some work that's uh, Stanford Chen. This is work that was done at UC Davis, and it's titled Holding Intruders Accountable on the Internet. And they also place sniffers in the network at, at, uh, at access, well, bottlenecks perhaps, uh, points in and out of the network. And what they do is they keep a running checksum over all the data that goes out of that stream. So while the stream's active, every minute they kind of do a checksum of the data that's flowing through there. Okay? And so they have a record on a minute-by-minute -minute basis that's a large integer that's representative of the data that, that went through. Now, what the idea behind this is, is if at some point later on you're attacked, you can match this thumbprints taken at different points in the network and see if it's the same stream. It doesn't always match because sometimes the timing is off a little bit, but they claim it's good enough uh, to detect streams in between, even with some delay. The problem with this is that the checksum is based on content. That is, they're looking at the data that's going through. Now, this, this is a problem if you're looking at streams that change. For example, we're probably all familiar with Secure Shell, right? If we're not, we should be. But um, Secure Shell encrypts the connection. So if you're taking a thumbprint of a particular encrypted connection, and it goes to a host, and there's another Secure Shell session going out that uses a different key, which it most likely does, the thumbprints are going to be wildly different because the encryption is going to cause them to look very, very different. Same thing can happen with compression, right? Just by compressing the stream can make it look very different. And, it, and actually the encryption doesn't necessarily have to be pretty hard. You could use like ROT13 or a Caesar cipher or something, right? Just enough to screw up the thumbprint so it doesn't work very well. The other thing is, is that if the attacker knows this stuff is going on, they can take active measures to prevent the thumbprinting from working. And this is a general problem for all network-based solutions, so I'll show you a little bit about it. One of the things that you can do is you can insert fake data in the stream so that it reaches one point in the network where there's a sniffer, but not some other point in the network where it's a sniffer. So one sniffer will see a lot more traffic going by than the one further away will. Um, some ways of doing this. Remember before I mentioned there's a time to live in, in each packet. You can set the time to live low enough so that it'll make it past one sniffer, but not the other, and the packet will essentially disappear in between. 
Or you can do something strange with the packet, like uh, screwing with the checksum or doing a bunch of other things that cause the packet to be dropped. These ideas were put forth in a paper by uh, Tachik and Newsham, which is a hard thing to say. Um, and it's called Assertion, Invasion, and Denial, and help me out here. Somebody from my class. I thought that's what it was. Thank you. Assertion evasions and denial of service, which is uh, designed to defeat network sniffer-based things. So here's an example. Oh my gosh, my lines all went away. Okay, well, excuse me for a moment. So down here, this this host is sending has a connection that goes through to the uh, the green host over there, and it's sending two packets. It's sending a yellow one and this white one or light blue one. Well, the, the yellow one makes it to that router to that host, but then it gets dropped and it doesn't get forwarded on. So the sniffer down here will see both packets. The sniffer only here, over here only sees one. Because of that, the sniffers, the thumbprints, and the things the sniffers see are pretty dramatically different. And hopefully, they, hopefully from the attacker's point of view, they won't match. It's also possible to send packets over multiple paths. Remember before, we said that packets didn't necessarily have to follow the same path. So if you can find different paths for your packet to the same thing, they might pass through different sniffers. And each thumbprint, like a thumbprint at one point, might be the entire stream, but the thumbprint at other places will only be parts of the stream. So here's an example of that. And again, all my lines went away. Hmm. Uh, they're just very faint. I should have used a different color. I'm sorry. So here, uh, here, this host, let me see which way we're going. Yeah, this host sends information here. Oh, I hate when slides go bad. So. Here's, here's the, our source right here, and it's sending two packets. It sends a yellow packet and a blue packet. Both of those go through this particular sniffer, and when they get sent out, they go over different paths. When they happen to reach over towards a victim here, they pass through two different sniffing systems. So each one only has a thumbprint of part of the stream. Both packets, however, arrive at the host. Okay? So now the thumbprints at two different places will be partial. They won't be an entire thumbprint. Very difficult to match. So what do we need to fix all these things? Well, first of all, we need better network support for traceback. As hopefully you've been seeing, there's a lot of different research starts going on about, uh, about improving network support for uh, tracing things back. However, in doing this, we also have to be concerned with people's privacy, right? Obviously, one simple thing to do would just be record everything that goes on in the network all the time. However, uh, most users in the network don't really want that to happen. Right? You don't want people knowing that you're going to look at like the new Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar or Victoria's Secret or whatever to use some very polite and tame examples. Right? Um, <laughs> so you really want some sort of privacy and anonymity guarantees despite the fact that this, these, uh, this monitoring is happening. So actually here at Sirius we have a project going on and we call it the Packer tra Packet Tracker Project, which is not quite exactly a, a precise name, but it's good enough. And what's happening is we are actually uh, have the goal of stimulating research in this area to help solve these problems. And we want to try and produce a workable solution for some very small environment, right? So maybe for a, a corporation that controls all the routers and all the hosts, we want to be able to say, here's a system design that will work for that, okay? What we're, what we're doing with this now is uh, we're going through and trying to find all the old research that's applicable here, and I've pretty much covered most, if not all, of it, because this is a very new research area. Okay? 
we're identifying some different environments where we're uh, able to implement things and concerns about those particular environments, right? In the internet, for example, you, the privacy concerns come up pretty readily. You don't want to record everything or you want to be able to disassociate individuals' patterns with, uh, with the records unless you need to arrest them or something like that, right? We're also investigating existing solutions. In fact, we're re-implementing a couple of the different things. Uh, Tom Daniels is re-implementing the caller ID system, the host-based thing. And in doing so, he's found that it's actually pretty difficult to make sure within a host that the host is able to correctly identify who is uh, sending things to. I don't think that parsed correctly, but uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty difficult to maintain where a stream of information flowing through a host is going. Because of covert channels inside, inside the network, it may be that uh, I am logged into a machine as myself, but it just so happens that Sam Wagstaff is running a big crypto thing there. Okay? If I can come out of the box as Sam, it looks to the end system as, oh yeah, Sam was logged in there, so it could be him, but in fact it's me. Right? We're, also, uh, we're also implementing the thumbprinting, the thumbprinting work to take a look and see how it's doing. And I've been picking on Florian Ekfak through this talk because that's what he's working on when uh, he's not here listening to me talk. Right? Okay, so uh, so he's, we're actually looking at the we're actually looking at that work to determine how effective thumbprinting is. Uh, again, we're going to be looking at unencrypted streams, just normal telnet connections. So, what is there to do in the future? Well, we want to encourage good network citizenship. I talked earlier about putting filters in place to prevent your domain from being attacked. One of the things we're working on and um, Tom Daniels is working on this, myself and uh, Greg Ellis, do you know him? Undergrad, smart guy. Um, what we're trying to do is conduct a measure of how many domains actually do this filtering. And what we're doing is we're essentially building a little server and we're building a bunch of little clients and we're going to set up the server outside our firewall and we're going to get up on Slashdot or someplace big and say, hey, everybody run these clients and we'll tell you if you're able to spoof IP packets or not. And hopefully enough people will be interested that they will download our software, which will be uh, the source code will be available so you'll be able to see what it's doing. And they'll connect to our server and try and spoof some packets to us. And by doing that, we can record and see which domains do this type of filtering and which don't. Now, this is good because in the future, if more people are buying the new improved Cisco routers that are able to do this filtering, we'll be able to like, run this test over time and see if more domains are doing filtering and limiting the scope of attacks that can actually occur. It's kind of it's a measure. Uh, also, in the long term, what needs to be done is exactly what we were talking about before, is figuring out how to build better routing equipment that can do these lookups and do this filtering and still forward packets on very quickly. This is a good citizenship because it prevents your domain from being part of the attack. We also, in some cases, want to be able to mark single packets for source determination. As I said earlier, the uh, practical network support for IP traceback requires a whole bunch of different packets to be marked over, over time. In some cases, like the ping of death and uh, some other like uh, control message attacks, it would be nice to be able to look at a packet and know just from one packet where it came from. And that would probably require putting information in the packet and storing some state in the network. So I don't know how to do this. This is an interesting problem and something I'm going to work on in the future. Other future work. What we want to be able to do is match encrypted streams and be able to defeat the other, the other types of attacks that we talked about before. Okay? 
So uh, we want to be able to like, do some auditing of encrypted streams when you see that secure shell connection go by. Maintain some very small audit data about that in such a way that you can efficiently match it against other audit streams and other parts of the network, even though the encryption might have changed at different points. So some of the things we're looking at are uh, looking at the packet sizes when they go by, looking at idle times. You can look at the overall size of the connection as well. So trying to match uh, streams based on that. We also want to, in doing this, we have to be able to maintain audit data in a very efficient manner, right? You can imagine that if you're doing this in the backbone somewhere, though I don't know why you necessarily would, you would have to maintain an awful lot of data about streams because there's just so many streams going through. So whatever you maintain has to be very small and very efficient. We also want to be able to do match streams that have things inserted or match streams that have been split. So you can kind of add two things together and see if they are one third stream. And uh, actually, I'm hoping to drag some of the, the people in from statistics who look at DNA matching and DNA sequence matching on these kind of problems because this is essentially kind of a substring, substring finding problem, which is uh, not necessarily dissimilar to the, the type of things you do in computational biology. Okay, so yeah, question. Well, I know like one of the designs of SSL was that, it, was that you couldn't trace it, so that each packet was different sizes. It was hard to trace back. So doesn't that kind of go against some of the designs of secure protocols? Sure. Yeah, I'm, actually one thing I like to work on here, I didn't mention it's a research interest of mine, is building protocols that allow people to communicate over the network anonymously. So essentially my research is looking at the same problem from two sides. On one side I'm trying to figure out how to trace people, on the other side I'm trying to figure out how to keep from being traced. <laughs> right? <laughs> so. And it's great, you know, you've got, got it going on both ways at the same time. And there's, there's a lot of protocols, like onion routing does that, if you've ever heard of onion routing. Um, it, does, it sends out these packets that are multiply encrypted and they get decrypted at different hops and you insert padding data into them so that they look like they're the same size all the way through. And uh, yeah, so that does make it difficult, sure, absolutely. Um, uh, the question I have to myself is if this is an arms race between hackers being able to hide and good guys like me and all of you hopefully, um, trying to be able to find them. Who's going to win in the end? And I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm kind of tending on the tracking side, like, but, but who knows. Right? So let's, let's think for a second now. Who, who could have possibly done these hacks against, the, uh, the, against these e-commerce hacks? Okay. Now if we think about it, I don't think we can actually pinpoint anybody, but we can actually rule out a number of people. Okay. Like me, <laughs> you know, I, I swear I didn't do it. I was really busy that week because I had a paper to do. I'd also like to claim that my mom, my mom does not have the technical expertise to be able to do this along with most of my family. So I'm, I'm pretty confident they didn't do it. Um, Kevin Mitnick, so he just got out of jail a couple of weeks ago and I'm pretty sure that, you know, his terms of probation keep him away from computers and stuff. So I'm pretty sure he's not eager to get back in jail. And, uh, President Clinton's dog, Buddy, I think, probably gets watched pretty closely, so he probably didn't slip off. Uh, other than that, it could just be about anybody, right? <laughs> uh, the I think. I think we can rule out me. So, <laughs> I think I'm innocent, therefore I am innocent. <laughs> uh, okay. So. So anyway, so the answer is we may never know who did it, right? If you look at the way the investigation's proceeding, there's no clues from the network and everything they seem to be looking at that they've announced is coming off of uh, people who are bragging over IRC and the authors of the tools who didn't necessarily do it even though maybe they shouldn't have written those tools and the opinion of law enforcement. So 
We might not ever know. All right, any other questions? Uh, we'll work back to front. Yeah? Do you think that there's perhaps too much emphasis in please no booze, no planes, but is there too much emphasis on protecting the privacy of the individual at the cost perhaps of, you know, the individual who needs protection is probably the person that's doing something gray to black? Uh, I disagree with that, and, and I disagree with that not because I don't think there's a case to be made for it. I think, in fact, there is. But, uh, but there are a number of reasons that an anonymity and maintaining anonymity is a valid thing to do. Uh, some of them off the top of the head that you can think of is say you're a whistleblower for the mafia and you want to inform on your mafia colleagues who are doing bad things without them coming and killing you. Say you're a government dissident. Um, there's a whole bunch of other, other examples. And in fact, the American Association for the Advancement of Science had a conference solely devoted to looking at anonymity in computer networks and anonymity in the, in the internet in particular. And they determined that, in fact, anonymity is a desirable trait. And in fact, in the United States, it's probably a constitutional guarantee. So. How does that differ from telecommunications like on a telephone, where you have star 69 or something like that? Is there any difference at all in the technology, in, 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 the, in the policy ramifications? I mean, why, why should one technology be different than the other? Should the phone, should you be able to be... I think, my personal opinion is you should be able to make anonymous calls on your telephone. Um, yeah, you can. There's like star six something which will block the call, the call thing. So, um, star 69 doesn't work. Uh, it only works on, they say, common telephone networks. It won't, for instance, trace back telemarketers. Strictly as an Right, as an example. Do I think there's a difference between the two? My personal opinion is no. I, I have to say that I'm just a computer geek and I've got to wear my view of like the tools and the technology. Mm -hmm. That policy is a little bit, though I give it consideration, you know, the, oops, the first time I thought of anonymous stuff, I thought, you know, I felt like I've just invented something that can propel a lead projectile at 2,400 feet per second. I wonder what I can do with this, you know. It definitely has the, it definitely has the possibility for good or for evil. Um, so I do think about the policy, but I don't think I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to demur on saying what should be. I don't be a dead horse here, but, but my point is that we're, we're reaching, I think, a saturation point. Well, if attacks like this continue, where something has to give, if it's, if it's a question of the Internet as, as it exists now with complete freedom mm -hmm. versus something else, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know either. There was a point raised in the thread in Slashdot yesterday that uh, there, was a, there was an article with Andy, uh, an interview with Dan Dietrich yeah. uh, about this. And one of the things raised was um, why is there so much, I mean, to answer as in response to this, why is there such a high level of, um, I don't know, importance placed on the availability? I mean, if you don't get the mail for an extra six hours, do you die? No. If you can't get through to eBay for three minutes, why does the world stop? The answer is that it doesn't, for the most part. Uh, please. The difference, and again, I think this is this, this, it's an excellent point. I think the, the difference between the way the web was and the way the web is going is e-commerce. Mm -hmm. And whereas it was fun before, you know, when you lose $1.2 billion in revenue, when somebody does a denial of service attack, somebody, somewhere, wants somebody else to pay for that. Sure. Okay. 
Absolutely, I agree. And and uh, you know, the day after uh, E Trade was hit, there were a number of quotes from people in the newspaper who said, "I wasn't able to get in, and I lost six percent." They were day traders, and they couldn't get in and access their account, and they lost money because they couldn't get in and actually do the trades they wanted to. I would I would question then. So these businesses were the ones who chose to go into e-commerce. Maybe it was their choice before Medium. Um, if if the Medium is susceptible to these types of attacks, you have to consider that when you're going to say, "Well, I'm going to." Well, I, I disagree. That's like saying that you could be shot when you go outside, therefore it's your responsibility to wear a bulletproof vest all the time. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's not just that. It's about whether if, as a society, we decide to consider the Internet as a, an infrastructure for commerce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what all this comes down to is we're at the beginning of uh, something very new and exciting. You know, I, I don't know what the Internet's going to be like five years from now, 10 years, 20 years. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know what it's going to be like in two weeks. Yeah? I, I just like to challenge those lost statistics. I think they're a bunch of garbage. <laughs> uh, when you look at actually how, how long, for instance, eBay was down, mm -hmm. they weren't down that long. And it's true that they have a revenue stream that takes in so many million dollars an hour. But uh, I remember I was at Lawrence Livermore National Lab when the Morris worm struck. Mm -hmm. And it struck about 200 Sun and Ultrix machines. And some idiot named McCaffey comes in, talks to the press, doesn't know anything what's going on, and, and gives a figure of $97 million. And the press accepts that at face value. I think as security professionals, we have to realize that these crime law statistics and incident law statistics, they're a bunch of hooey. Right. And there's probably, there, and, and I don't know exactly how it works, but I would imagine that there's incentive to inflate your loss figures. Uh, certainly I know the FBI won't look at any, anything that doesn't have a value of less than $10,000. You know, that's kind of their cutoff point. So I don't know what actually cons constitutes computer loss of $10,000. But uh, being down for a few hours for me, well, that wouldn't, that might be worth it. I don't know. But. Anything else? Yeah. Talking about anonymity, and there's been some talk in about IP version six, about being able to, um, in some of the header, insert data that lets you trace all the way back to like the MAC address, that kind of thing. Um, what do you think about that in, in relationship to this? You know, I haven't looked at the IPv6 stuff in detail yet. I know that there is a proposal that since the address space is so huge and you're only using the ends of it, you can put some stuff in the middle. Some people are proposing the MAC address. The MAC address, the MAC address will specifically identify a particular machine. It won't necessarily identify where in the network that machine is. So the other thing is, is that uh, some grad students, like uh, Chris up there, are working on ways of doing anonymity despite that, despite the fact that uh, despite the fact that that MAC address is in there by exploiting the broadcast nature of Ethernet. So it could be anybody on the particular Ethernet communicating. So uh, There was a lot of talk about that a while ago. I want uh, something that was never really cleared up is that that particular addressing scheme is never supposed to leave your local area network. You're, never, uh, that, you're only supposed to have that MAC address embedded if it's in your local area network. So, yeah, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, if you get a packet, say I send you a bad packet, the ping of death, and it's got my MAC address. And even if it's right, you know, where is that MAC address coming from? Because the network routing is big enough that, and hierarchical enough that the, the MAC address route information is not available everywhere in the network. It would be useful if you're able to trace it back to, say, say you're using the, you know, the, uh, the stuff where it 
probabilistically add stuff. If you can get to that last router, it will specifically identify a machine. But if you can't find the part in between, it may not be useful. So. All right, I think we should probably uh, wrap up here and let people go out and enjoy their Friday night. Thank you very much for coming. So.